Yehuda Kurtzer is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. He is a leading thinker and author on the meaning of Israel to American Jews, on Jewish history and Jewish memory, and on questions of leadership and change in American Jewish life. Yehuda received his doctorate in Jewish studies from Harvard University. He's the author of Shuva, the Future of the Jewish Past, which offers a new thinking to contemporary Jews on navigating the tensions between history and memory, and the co-editor of the forthcoming volume, The New Jewish Canon, a collection of the most significant Jewish ideas and debates of the past two generations. I sat down with Yehuda in his office at the Hardman Institute in Jerusalem when he was visiting from New York for the summer to discuss his relationship with God, American Jewry, the Reform Movement, Israeli-American Jewish relations, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. Support for this episode of Jewish People and Ideas comes from the Mayanot Institute of Jewish Studies, located in the heart of Jerusalem, providing a highly academic Judaic studies curriculum taught by a dynamic staff and a welcoming atmosphere. To learn more, go to mayanot.edu. So you had a very special childhood growing up in Egypt and in Israel as the son of the U.S. ambassador. How did that affect your Jewish identity? So I think I was very fortunate in both having a very strong Jewish upbringing, a modern Orthodox household, parents who were committed to a, a religious life, um, and simultaneously uh, access to uh, people and experiences who, that were outside of the insularity of what my upbringing might have looked like otherwise. Um, my living, in, we lived in Egypt between 79 and 82, so that's right around the time of Camp David. We moved to Israel 82 to 86, so that's between Lebanon and the First Intifada. I don't remember any of the politics of that story. I was quite young. I was in uh, kindergarten in Egypt in uh, a, uh, a Dati Lumi uh, elementary school here in Israel where I learned Hebrew. But I do remember uh, as a kid that our Shabbat table was always filled with interesting people and people who were really different from my parents, whether it was because they were uh, had different politics, they were uh, engaged in, in the political and diplomatic work that my parents were doing. It was always the case that when my parents' friends would come over for Shabbat, they wanted to talk about what was going on in Israel and in the Middle East, even when we were back living in Silver Spring. So I, I always felt that there was this kind of portal between uh, between the richness of Jewish life lived in religious community and this whole world of macroeconomic issues facing the Jewish people in the state of Israel. And I was able to kind of sit on the threshold between those two places. So where do you see yourself? You grew up in a modern Orthodox home. My, the question I'd really like to ask you is, what's your relationship with God? Which is kind of like jumping right into it. <laughs> yeah. But really, we're in the Hardman Institute. Yeah. You're the president of the Shalom Hardman Institute of America, which is involved in Jewish life. Yeah. You grew up in a modern Orthodox home. From what I understood from your talks, you have, um, I don't know how to say it. You don't completely follow halacha. You, like halacha has a, a gray line, as yeah. far as I understood. How, you tell me, how, what, what is your Jewish life like? What's your relationship with God? What's your, well, what's going on? Yeah, going right to it. Yeah, uh, why not? Uh, my relationship with God. So, as I said, you know, you're right. I grew up in an Orthodox household. I lived, I was in, in Yeshiva Haratzion and alone food for two years. I feel, I felt growing up and still feel in many ways at home in modern Orthodoxy because that's like the, all of us are like, have the aquarium that we grow up in. And so you have the familiarity of the, the songs, the, the people, et cetera. Uh, at some point in my early 20s, I became less comfortable politically uh, in Orthodox synagogues. That was actually, wasn't Orthodox synagogues writ large. It was actually a particular experience. I was sitting in a shul and the rabbi uh, on Shabbat Zachor analogized what at the time was a recent Israeli Supreme Court decision to legitimize reform and conservative conversions to Shaul not killing Agag when he had the chance. And I looked around and I said, I'm, I can't be complicit in this. I actually love the Jewish people. I had really formative pluralistic experiences with the Bronfman program and others. I knew the sincerity of who the Jewish people actually were. And I felt like, no, I can't be part of this. That's when I walked out of that shul. And at the same time was uh, partly because of, because of my wife's experiences and her own journey and also a sense of what 
moral compromises I felt orthodoxy was making me do, I really wanted to find uh, egalitarian community. And the hard part was, how do I capture what felt like the, it's a terrible word, but the religious authenticity of orthodoxy, the intimacy, the, the language, uh, with what felt like the moral obligations of, of egalitarianism? Uh, to actually, and to read those as religious obligations, not Jewish values over here, democratic values over here, but that they actually, they, those represent what it means to be a, a pious, uh, pious Jew. So we, we f- at the time founded a, uh, traditional egalitarian congregation in Boston, which f- at least felt to us like an effort to live in these, with that stuff together. It, the joking way we called it was we called it Flashic Egalitarian. <laughs> you <laughs> know. Actually- a good joke. Yeah, I mean, you get it, right? Yeah. Like, why, why, when you become egalitarian, do you have to trade chicken for chickpeas? It doesn't vegan, make sense, right? Vegan. Why? They're not connected. Um, but more importantly, I, it felt it felt like, how do I actually capture these ele- these twin elements of a religious identity? And we still go back there every year. We had to move from Boston to New York, and so we left the minion that we founded. It feels like that's what you do as a Jew. You find home and then go into exile. But it still is in many ways uh, the shul we had designed, and I, we still go back every year for, for Yamim Noraim. You know, I answered the question denominationally. I didn't answer the question religiously. I have ambivalent feelings about God, but I have even more ambivalent feelings about talking about God. Okay, so because I asked you something uncomfortable. It's great. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to talk about why I'm uncomfortable. I... I get very nervous that when people talk about their relationship to God, they're talking about themselves and that God becomes paradoxically a vehicle for human hubris. People who talk about their own intimacy with God are actually making themselves bigger (laughs) because they talk to God. Part of me is like the, you know, that old Jewish joke, which I'm going to butcher of like, look who thinks he's, you know, so-and-so. It's like something about God talk feels oftentimes like uh, an attempt for people to mirror their own superiority. What's an example of that? Like what comes to mind? Like what do you mean God talk and somebody I I am expressing I it? have a lot of empathy for Chazal. That's mm-hmm. where I that's where I live intellectually and spiritually is with Chazal. Chazal's whole project um I find religiously is coming to terms with the fact that we're no longer in a period of prophecy. We're supposed to be skeptical of prophets. As amazing, the amazing Gemara of prophecy is taken from from um, from sages, from prophets, and given to fools and children. Some sense that those who walk around speaking in God's name are they wield a lot of power. When you when you see yourself as act, acting in God's name, you can you can do a lot of violence and a lot of damage. When uh, when the Givati commander in 2014 told his troops as they're about to enter Gaza on a ground invasion, you're fighting a milchamet Hashem, you're fighting God's war. Thank God the IDF took him out and said, no, you're not. No, you're, not. <laughs> you're fighting a human battle, and that requires of you to really differentiate between who's an enemy combatant and who's a civilian. And when you travel as God's army, you actually, you wield a lot of power at your disposal. So I, I am, I'm happy to talk about God when God becomes a force for our humility, when we can get there. But I get nervous that talking about God becomes a means of talking about I see what you're ourselves. saying now. So when a person has a relationship with God and sees themselves as small because God is so great, then talking about God is a good thing. But when you use God as an amplifier for your own ego... Right, this is what God's telling us to do, right? I even I even wonder, and I, I've been trying to teach about this the last couple of years, I even wonder sometimes whether when when activists, human, human right, rights activists, use the language of Tzalem Elohim, that human beings are created in the image of God, as a means of activating our moral responsibility to take care of others, I sometimes wonder whether it's an avoidance of what is actually a more transcendent moral position, which is, no, I care about you just because you're a human being. That in some ways, Tzalem Elohim triangulates. What I'm really doing is worshiping God, and that obligates me to care about you. Um, and in some, and I, I, it's even like, don't make me look at that other person. Let me just impose upon them this template that they are created in the image of God, and then that activates my responsibility. A real transcendent moral responsibility to the to the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the refugee is: I actually see you as a human being, and I feel obligated. I feel commanded just because you're actually a human being. You don't need the commandment, is what you're saying. Just because you're ways, human, just because you're hum- you're, mm-hmm. you're human, 
right? And it's not, that's not a, to make a humanist argument versus a religious argument, but it is to try to figure out how does talking about God get in, actually get in the way morally of being obligated by other humans. Uh, can I stay on this for a second? Yeah, sure. I have a lot of <laughs> I'm sure, questions. I'm sure you do. But um, Dara Horn has this uh, amazing short book called The Rescuer, uh, where she tries to understand why do some human beings do exceptional things like hiding Jews during the during the Shoah or and, and the example she gives is like a person who jumps onto a train tracks to rescue somebody. Uh, and what she ultimately, what she excites a whole bunch of, uh, of experts on this, that it's not really teachable, uh, and that it's not really understandable. That there are all sorts of obstacles that we have that prevent us from risking our own lives to save other people. And that when people do it, it's almost like an instinct. In fact, when you ask, she quotes uh, Pierre Sauvage on this and, and says, when you ask rescuers, why did they do something? Their answer is, I don't know, like it was automatic. And on one hand, most people are not that way. On the other hand, there's something unbelievably noble about how do you, how do you condition yourself as a human being that your obligations towards other human beings are actually human and not just the, th- not through what I consider to be a theological shortcut. What's a theological shortcut? I have to do this because I'm obeying God. Got it. Well, maybe let's fake it till you make it. Isn't the ultimate purpose of being a religious Jew to become a mensch? Ultimately. Maybe. Um, that, I mean, that's how I see it. What's the point of having guests on Shabbos? You spend money, you cook the food, you host people that a lot of times you don't get along with or you don't like, and you do it with a smile and you serve. In our house, we have a house of a lot of guests. And we even have homeless people come into our house. Yeah. We, have, we live in Nachlaut, which is like yeah. <laughs> the fruitiest place in yeah. Jerusalem. We get, we get the kids and crazy people. Yeah. We get the prophets come in our house. And for me, it's an incredible connection with Hashem because I just get to, I get to be a person, but also doing a mitzvah. And it humbles me every time. Yeah. Every time. And that the whole process is putting me through the sausage grinder and turning me into something that I wouldn't naturally be on my own without this framework. I, I have certain envy for people who, um, who can experience the kind of, uh, theological transcendence you're talking about. It's just not part of. Maybe it's just not part of my makeup. I have a hard time with it. I I do believe that an important aspect of being a human being is being a mensch. I think being a Jew is part of that story. I believe in, I believe anthropologically, human beings need community. Um, I believe really in Jewish peoplehood. I believe in this story that the Jewish people have sustained for a long period of time. It's very hard for me to to go to the next stage and to say this that there's some sort of theolog- like a theological destiny of the Jewish people. I kind of wonder whether, and we may be very different on this, I kind of wonder whether if I was born Episcopalian, I would just want to be a really good Episcopalian. Why, and why not? <laughs> right. But that means, that means that like, I, I, I don't know about a special relationship between God and the Jewish people. And I certainly don't know about a, um, an intimate relationship between God and me, but I know that I care a lot about my people and about the communities on which I'm in. And I believe that there's something I, I do experience, as you described, when we have a lot of guests in our home and when, when we're, you know, when we have 30 people at a Pesach Seder. And I, I want to think about transcendence without, without theology. What do you mean transcendence? What, what, when you say that, what do you, what do you mean? I don't understand the term. I know it's a Hardman term. There is a vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, there here. is a vocabulary, I guess. And, um, and sometimes like a ping pong match. And I'll listen to these lectures and I'm like, I don't know, just half of what they just said. <laughs> you could, you could have a dictionary and Google anyhow. it. Yeah. It's not the same. But what do you, like, what are you trying to say when you say transcendence? Theological transcendence. You know, I guess some people stand on a mountaintop and they say, oh my God, this is magnificent. This is a proof of God in the world. And I want to be able to say, oh my God, this is magnificent. The end. Why do you need proof of God in the world? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I guess what I've been trying to say all along is that I, I want people to be good human beings and mensches because they should be good human beings and mensches. Okay. Right. And not because. Because they're commanded to be. Not because we're commanded to or not, or a, a commandedness that actually originates from our sense of what it means to be responsible. 
what I wrote about in my book was how do we become a people who is commanded while being doubtful of the commander? Those are different. It's different things. The, Absolutely. the visceral experience of feeling obligated, it doesn't have to be defined by I believe in the commander. And I, I think I think for Jews in modernity, post-enlightenment, post-emancipation, to make the claim that we have to be, that our obligation stems from belief, it's like a bad setup for the future of Jewry. Yeah, it doesn't have to stem from belief. That's yeah. Nasev and Ishma. If you get to belief, it's kind of like adding the salt to the food. I guess so. Now it tastes a lot better. But for some people without belief, it's too heavy of a burden. They just feel like, okay, if there's no purpose, what am I going through all these motions for? I'll just go live a totally secular life. Yeah, although the word purpose there is, is doing a lot of work. It's not that there's no purpose if it's not that it's being obligated by God. But it's that the purpose has to be understood really differently. A higher purpose, I guess. A higher intention. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I find that to be a very thin religiosity, right? I have to do this because, I have to do this because God wrote the Torah, right? Because, because of my relation, my relationship with God, just like my relationship with my wife. I have to do things in order to have a relationship with my wife. And I have to do things in order to have a relationship with God. It's not just a one way street. I suppose, but um, I'm not sure that the spousal relationship works as much, but maybe we'll, if I could stay with it for a second. There are things I need to do because this is my relationship with my spouse, but to be a good husband, to be a good person, is not actually defined by how that other person is going to be experienced it. I actually also have to have an independent standard, an independent threshold of the kind of human being that I want to be in the world. And to source that is is much less effective when it's sourced through like the punitive. If I do this wrong, right, it's going to have these consequences. There's something also very powerful and rich about saying the source of my goodness is what I'm committing to. That's what I mean by obligation with that being. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's quote unquote a higher purpose to, I think it's actually, I think there's actually something really powerful and noble in and of itself of like, I'm going to be a morally decent human being without the question of accountability. I think this is what's going on with Chazal, by the way, when the rabbis say, it, they're not, it's not, um, what is this? Antigonus each Soho. It's not that we're not supposed to believe in reward and punishment. It's that reward and punishment are not supposed to be the instruments by which you live in the world. Ultimately. Not, they're not supposed to be. Now, can we, I don't know if we can get rid of it, <laughs> right? Uh, but I think what they're trying to say is you, you live at this, you live at this period of time. What are you capable of doing in your own lifetime? And that's, that's supposed to be as theologically significant, maybe even more, that I'm going to be pious because there's a possibility of a reward. I'm leaving the topic now. Fine. Okay. Because I think we could go on like this for, for a, a long yeah. time. Basically, I understood you re- mentioned the Rabbanut, the power of the Rabbanut, and the reform and conservative movements, and how it, it bothered you that they're not accepted. You didn't go that far. I'm taking it further. They're not accepted over here. So I grew up in the reform movement. I became a Banshuva at 17 through Chabad. Mm-hmm. I don't wear a black hat, but I, I'm very connected to Chabad. I have a real problem with reform conversions and conservative conversions. I look at it as a, as a currency. So dollars, you can spend pretty much anywhere in the world. But shekels, you can't. Can't go to Missouri to a supermarket and give them shekels. They'll look at me and say, what is this? And a conversion, the reform conversion is good in the reform movement. Maybe the reconstructionist conservative already has like two levels. And modern Orthodox has another level. And then you get the most strict Haredi rabbi in America, and that'll be a safe pass also over here. Mm -hmm. I don't see anything wrong with that. If a person is very committed to their Judaism, and they really want to be accepted across the board, then they'll make sure to have a conversion that's accepted by everyone. The only reason that orthodoxy is dollars and reform is shekels is because that's the rules of the game, as someone has established. But it's perfectly it would be perfectly reasonable to imagine that the majority of American Jewry, which traffics in shekels, not dollars, responds and says, you know what, we're not taking your dollars here either. Now, I'm happy that doesn't happen, and I'm fine with some notion that, like, here's a conversion that everybody accepts, and here's a conversion that nobody accepts, or that only some people accept. But here's where the metaphor becomes a problem. You're right that uh, if I go to the supermarket in Missouri, they're not going to take my shekels. But you know who will? The bank. If you go to the bank in Missouri and say, I have foreign currency, and I want to exchange it, you'll actually find a person who can exchange it. And the reason why That's that, good, the reason why that metaphor is important is because I don't think, I don't believe, maybe, maybe I'm different than the reform movement on this, but I don't believe that the point is delegitimize orthodox conversion by making reform conversion acceptable. The argument that I would make is there's no reason why you have to have a homogenized currency in this whole business. 
If you as an Orthodox Jew believe that someone who has had a reform conversion hasn't fully crossed the threshold to live as an Orthodox Jew, force them to exchange the currency. <laughs> when they enter and they enter your community, set up a gatekeeping um, process. I would argue it doesn't have to be it usually doesn't have to be conversion, right? It might be some cuz cuz remember some of the classic sources on conversion are about actually joining the Jewish people. You would agree most of the people in the reform movement have joined the Jewish people. Do I think that they've done the right halachic step to cross the official boundary and become the Jewish people? So maybe you don't think that they have. And if they want to join orthodoxy, you might be able to then give them a pathway in the system to do the currency exchange. <laughs> I think what we have done on this issue is taken the ethos of a community and mapped it onto the Jewish people. And that's a mistake. Why can't we you hold on? To explain yes, that I will. Okay. Why can't we hold on to the notion Orthodoxy is a community. Reform is a community. The Jewish people is something different. It's a nexus that's made up of a lot of these different communities. We all have, in, in the, in the micro communities that make up the Jewish people, we have different characteristics. We have different songs. We have different barriers of entry. It's lower in reform. It's higher in orthodoxy. You don't take, the Jewish people is diminished when you take one community and say, we now have to homogenize the Jewish people around the rules that dictate one community. I know it's not, it's not concept, in, in practice, it sounds hard. Conceptually, I think we could have different rules of belonging for individual Jewish communities and the Jewish people. Don't we have that already? Exactly. Yeah. So why, so why do we set up infrastructure in the state of Israel where, where we're using the politics of one community to dictate belonging in the Jewish people? It's already incoherent. It's already the case that you can become a citizen of the state of Israel through mm. a, a quote-unquote conversion process that's inconsistent with Orthodox halakha. Well, you don't need to convert to Correct. A you need one Jewish grandparent. Exactly. So why can't, why wouldn't, why wouldn't, if you already have kind of busted out of the category of Orthodox belonging for the purposes of citizenship of the state of Israel, why does the state of Israel have laws on the books that say that the only way you can get married, get divorced, or die is through the Orthodox communal norms? Why not set up a standard of activities that signal belonging in the Jewish people that allow for multiple different portals of entry. Mm -hmm. And you'll still have to control that when someone wants to become Orthodox, they're going to have to cross another barrier. I and in some cases, saying. that's going to be painful for someone. Someone may say, I want to be in your community, and I already became a member of the Jewish people. And that's, okay, that's a, that's a painful conversation. Guess what? A passport to the Jewish people doesn't give you a visa into every community into the Jewish people. Uh, so you're saying here in the state of Israel, there basically should be separate rabbanuts. If we're going to have to have rabbanuts, then separate rabbanuts. If we want to be in that business. I'm not convinced that, that the state of Israel needs a rabbanut, but okay. If there, if there needs to be a rabbanut, then for sure. Why not have multiple denominational rabbanuts that are setting some sort of normative policy? Mm -hmm. um, that helps the government bridge between Jewish identity and and the the functions of government, like monitoring marriage, divorce, etc. Okay, I that's can you great. live with that? That was a great explanation. <laughs> I, I'm thinking just as like a side note. I have a friend who is German, and her parents, her grandparents, were part of the Nazi Party, and for whatever crazy reason, she wanted to be a Jew. Mm -hmm. And she was it was so important for her to become Jewish, and she converted at like 18 or 19, which is a very young age to make such a big commitment. She got she went to two batei din, the Eida Haredit in Jerusalem, and the Rabbanut in Tel Aviv without telling one or the other. So there'd be no question about a conversion whatsoever. And what I what I took from that is this is somebody who really, really cares and doesn't want anyone doubting her Judaism. Mm -hmm. And once it's over, moving on. And I feel like that's a strong commitment. There are a lot of really sincere people in different denominations who made a commitment to the Jewish people and entered via a particular community. And I, it's not a hierarchical thing for me. If someone gets gets converts through the, the Rabbanut versus the Reform Movement in America, they are more of a member of the Jewish people. They're not. They may, you may, by converting through the Rabbanut or through the Edah Haredit, you may have more visas in your passport. It may enable you to more enter access. more access. I don't think that that's a, I don't think that's actually a measure of, of who is in the Jewish people. I think in some ways we should be using more of our history of diaspora. Somebody converted through the Beitin and Salonika. The Beitin and Vilna would accept them as being a Jew. In, in what year? Right. It makes a difference. Most of Jewish history. Because Jews were persecuted. Who would be crazy enough to become a Jew? Great. So now we have to, now the idea that, that we're a popular identity would make us crazy like this. 
And since we're still nervous about our numbers, why don't we, why can't we embrace there are a lot of people who want to attach themselves to the Jewish people. I don't have to give all of them an aliyah in my shul. It's okay. Why not? Because I might say you have crossed the boundary to become a member of the Jewish people, but you're not Jewish at the standard that I consider for my denomination. I think that's okay. I think that's tolerable for us. Again, it doesn't mean that's always going to be pleasant. But even, you know, I go to a conservative shul now in New York. First of all, you don't ask people. Somebody shows up and says they're Jewish. Also in the Chabad shul that I'm in, by the way. Halachically speaking, you don't ask somebody. But if someone volunteers and said, I want to let you know that I I am a Jew by patrilineal descent. For the purposes of a conservative synagogue, they're not Jewish. But if they want to be part of a conservative synagogue, I would think that a, a culture of transparency that wasn't a zero-sum culture of transparency, since you're not Jewish enough for a conservative synagogue, I say you're not a member of the Jewish people. No. Except that you're a member of the Jewish people. We're part mm. of the same network. I see what you're saying. And there are a certain set of activities you have to do to be able to be a citizen of this particular version of Judaism. Okay. I think that explains it very well. Yeah. And uh, it really also cleared things up for me personally. I want to ask, there's two things I want to ask you. So I want to ask you about emancipation and enlightenment. Mm-hmm. I have a quote here from you, but you already know the quote that these are the two big problems that we've been dealing with. You said for the last 300 years, the ability to integrate into society and just be a normal American, for example, in America. I think America is the easiest place to just mm-hmm. be and also to choose that there is no God and I have no obligations. So first of all, it's not, I don't take credit for this. This is Jacob Katz, the great historian of modern Jewry who comes up with this formulation. You dug it up. So I'm in, I'm in that school of thought. Um, it just seems to me that these take the two twin experience, the two, these two twin experience of modernity of the right to be a free thinker, right? That's the enlightenment challenge, the right to challenge the, um, the authenticity of our religious traditions to see ourselves as standing at the top of history as opposed to burdened by history, the right to make whatever autonomous choices we want religiously in terms of our own identities. Um, that story just keeps, seems to keep, uh, metamorphosizing depending on the civilizations that we're in. Does Judaism weigh on us? Does it burden us? Do we feel obligated by it? All of that stuff lives in the Enlightenment Challenge. And the Emancipation Challenge is even more powerful because it first raised the possibility for Jews that they could become free citizens of whatever society they want and forced them to ask, does, what does that do to my sense of belonging to Jewish peoplehood? I think the key text on this is the exchange of letters between Napoleon and the Jewish nobles of the Sanhedrin in the late 18th century, where it's explicit. If you, you call yourselves a member of the Jewish people, but you want to be citizens of France, what are you willing to give up? That's the first great referendum. It weaves through the 19th century and the failure of emancipation, and it gives birth to Zionism as a story of the failure of emancipation. We thought, this is Pinsker's great discovery, Herzl as well, we thought that just by being, trying to be good citizens of the societies that we were in, they would let us have, they would let, they would accept us. And we discover, oh, the minute you think that you're about to be accepted, pogrom. And in some ways, much of what I think characterizes uh, political Zionism today is still a sense that emancipation was a lie. There's no alternative for the Jewish people other than the right of self-determination. That's why he calls the book, Pinsker calls the book, auto-emancipation. We have to do it for ourselves. We can't belong to the family of nations. It won't happen through that notion of acceptance. So Zionism is not, quote-unquote, about emancipation, but it may be about, in some ways, the rejection of emancipation, which leaves emancipation as the currency. And the American Jewish story is playing this out very differently, where American Jews get to actually play out the fantasy of what does it mean to not just be a tolerated minority within a society, but possibly even the exemplar of the An society embraced itself. Minority. Embraced, minority. but more than that, it's like the exemplar. Hmm. American Jews are have become basically the best version of what America thinks it does. Really? I didn't know that from sitting over here. What there's everything is everything works in America for American Jews. All of the stories of American Judaism about American Jewish political thriving, economic thriving, intermarriage, these are huge victories for American Jews. And so that's an interesting thing. Intermarriage is a victory for American Jews. The way my colleague Shaul Magid puts it, Jews always wanted to marry non-Jews in every society that we're in. We finally found a society of non-Jews willing to marry Jews. Uh, I think we have to read uh, a a high intermarriage rate as a story of the success of assimilation, which is something Jews have always wanted to do. How do we actually become free citizens of the societies that we're in? 
you go back to the mid 19th century when when Yudlaman Gordon writes the dream, right? The dream in the 19th century is to be a Jew at home and a human being in the street. You can't even imagine the possibility of what being a real human being in the street can look like, where you are thought of as a real equal citizen to the people around you. Yeah, 100%. And there's no other ethnic minority group that has had this kind of success while still having idiosyncratic features that remain over time that characterize that ethnic group, right? Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans yeah. become white people. And Jews, after how many generations do they also become white Who knows? people? We'll see. But it's uh-huh. not like, it's not, um, the myth of the disappearance of American Jewry is dramatically overstated. Tell me about that. Jews have powerful institutions in America. Jews are still, when you look at the Pew study, the famous Pew study, 94% of Jews say they're proud of being Jewish. That's unbelievable data. Now, is it, I, my own grievance with it is that it's oftentimes very thin. What they consider to be essential or elemental to their Jewishness feels very thin. But that's educational opportunity. How do I Which thicken? Is your area. Yeah, how do I thicken what it means to be a Jew? I find in American Jews, regardless of their identity choices, who's in my family, they are seeking desperately for Jewish content, for Jewish meaning, for Jewish community. Now, there's also part of what's so confusing about this present moment is that there's also a tremendous amount of uh, breakdown in the institutional infrastructure. The system designed for 20th century Jewry, which was premised on the notion that American Jews couldn't quite assimilate and therefore needed a separate body of institutions, is lingering and not working as well. That's not the same as a community disappearing. That just means that we're in a period of a kind of redesign Mm-hmm. Of what institutions do we actually need to serve an American Jewish identity that's vibrant, thriving, and at home in America? Are Jews in America living in the diaspora? Yeah, probably not so much anymore. I mean, it's certainly not exile. Yossi, I'm pointing to Yossi's yeah. office. Yeah. Yossi defined that in the podcast episode we did together. That it's exile. It's no longer exile because exile means that you can't choose where you want to live. Right. You can't choose to leave. Jews can live anywhere they want right now. Right. I'm comfortable with diaspora because I think that's what many Jews in antiquity thought of the term diaspora, which was spreading out. You know that... um Tfutzot. Yeah. Actually, diaspora. It's a Greek Jewish word. <laughs> Even better than Tfutzot. Tfutzot is Hebrew trying to approximate uh-huh. a diaspora word, like Beit Knesset, which is also a diaspora word. When um, Why do Jews go to Egypt in the 4th century BCE? Do you know this? No. The anchor of what became the prominent Alexandrian Jewish community. They left the land of Israel to become mercenaries in the Egyptian army. Really? That's a diaspora story. Wow. And now that's that's a story of a people that says, I'm going to pursue economic opportunity. I'm going to go to the place where I'm needed. I'm going to go anywhere. And it's not a, they didn't feel guilty about it. It wasn't like a violation of belonging to the Jewish people. American Jewish, American Jews are that story, but like on steroids, (laughs) because now we have the added element of, it's not just I, I'm not longing for the land of Israel anymore. It's that I, I could get on a plane and be a citizen of the first Jewish sovereign homeland in 2000 years. And I consciously elect not to. Now, I, we can talk about this more. I don't think yeah, that's, well, I don't think that's anti-Zionism. No, it's not. It's, Anti is but different. It's, it's but it is the choice, or even it's the choice to construct an identity somewhere else. And, and I think that's, I think that is revolutionary and powerful in Jewish history. I think it's also not something to be wasted. And you think that the American Jewish community is going to continue as a, as, as a united community with a Jewish identity? United? No. United in, <laughs> in the larger sense of the word. Big picture. I think American Jews will endure. I think American Jewish identity will endure. I think it will look different than it looked 50 years ago, 100 years ago. By the way, I think that's true everywhere at all times in Jewish history. I think there's a myth of continuity, which pretends that things basically stay the same, when in fact, a a Jew in Lithuania in the 19th century would not be able to recognize a Jew in France in the 14th century, right? Behaviors, practices, language, culture. They will have some things in common. Great. I think we will too. I think there will still be familial family resemblances. We're anchored, we're anchored around the same texts. We're anchored around the same big ideas. We are anchored, uh, by the same history, in many ways by the same memory. So I think there's, I think American Jews will absolutely endure. I think the let, the, the worst thing we can do for American Jews is to continue giving a prophecy of doom. Cause prophecy of, A, they're always, 
Prophecies of, of doom are never falsifiable. <laughs> you can always think think they're getting worse and find data to prove it. But also it it will disincentivize us to actually embrace who American Jews actually are and to scaffold around that. When you when the when you get into your mindset, the community I'm confronting is is falling off of a cliff, you actually create the wrong interventions to help a community like hmm. that. If you actually say, no, they're not falling off a cliff, they're just doing things really differently. I might want to give them tools to do what they're doing differently better. That's okay. it's a whole paradigm shift, really, for mm-hmm. how we relate as the Jewish people to change. I'm over here in Israel. I've been here for 25 years now. And my wife is Israeli. I'm surrounded by a lot of Israelis. And the general feeling over here is that America is gone. And all those crazy reformed Jews that come to the Kotel, I'm just giving you like the Israeli perspective, which you probably already know. The craziness that happens at the Kotel that most Israelis don't even care about the Kotel. And the ones that do go there and scream and spit and go crazy. That's our view of America. That's, that's, that's really the general view that I get from Israelis. That's sad. That approach me because I'm the American. And they say, so this is what I think about America. And, and there's really like a gap that isn't being bridged between the two sides. I find it so sad. I find it very sad that Jews in one part of the world would use their thriving as a means of delegitimizing the thriving of Jews elsewhere. Right. I, I get psychologically that if American Jews were being persecuted, Israelis would be there for us. Oh, yeah. It's With also, airlifts. Right. I get that. And I get why that's a shortcut. I don't like you. I don't care about you, but I'm responsible for you. Which is basically the story of how Israeli Jews treated Mizrahi Jews and, and Ethiopian Jews and treat each other. Yeah. Right? The, everyone pushes and shoves here. Right. Structural. But when there's right. a war, everyone's volunteering to help somebody else. It's, but it's worse than that. There's structural racism against Ethiopians in Israel. But we're we're responsible to get you out. We're not really responsible to love you and take care That's of you. That's another topic. Right? So we'll come no, back we to that come maybe. Back to that. So I find it bizarre that American Jews are not in that kind of crisis and that Israelis, therefore, are checked out from them, think that they're crazy, think that they're distant. I find it sad for, for a couple of reasons. One, they don't allow it in the reverse. When American Jews say Israelis are driving the car off the cliff, Israelis are very resentful. Right. Don't tell us what to do. Don't tell us what to do. So, first of all, if you believe that you're allowed to make that claim about another Jewry, you have to be prepared to accept it on the other end. If you don't think it's legitimate to have that argument made, then you have to ask a hard question. What is it that you're doing that I don't? I know I don't like, but I have to understand? And in what ways, if I don't like it, should I actually be responsible to help you as opposed to criticize you? I don't mind Israelis looking at American Jews and saying, guys, you're doing it wrong. Your Jewish education has thinned out. You should be doing Israel education differently. You're misunderstanding us. I don't mind them looking at it and saying, I really don't understand this whole intermarriage phenomenon and how do you make sense of that? If you're going to ask those questions, you have to be prepared to listen. <laughs> and you have to be prepared to maybe adjust the categories with which you define Jewishness to make room for a version that's inconvenient, you know? How can Israel help American Jews in that sense? Help American Jews to feel more accepted, to not be resentful? From the Israeli side, what can Israelis do? So I would say one piece is curiosity. And I I found this when I've taught here at Hartman to Israeli colleagues, to Israeli teachers, to Israeli rabbis. Um, They don't understand American Jews, but they're really curious. And their narratives... Since American Jewry doesn't fit into their clean narratives of who Jews are, how they're supposed to act, what it means to be a Zionist, it's not easy. It's not like, oh, you told me that's who you are and now it makes sense. They can push back. They can disagree. They say, I think you're crazy. But the curiosity opens up the possibility that we can learn from each other. And the other piece that I think Israelis need to do is to figure out what's a place that American Jews could have in this country and in this story that will fit. I don't believe, for instance... That Israel, that Israel has to create major political and otherwise accommodations for reform and conservative Jews. The country doesn't have a major constituency in that arena. I do think that there's a lot of Israelis in this country. I think number one, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be polite to reform conservative Jews. Um, that's for sure. Uh, to recognize I think that in they're part of the Jewish people. people. Are. A reformed Jew that comes here will feel very welcome as a Jew. Except in certain Except places. Except at the Kotel and Rosh Chodesh. Yeah. Um, well, it's more than that. It's also, 
if they if they envision the possibility of making Aliyah and realize that it will actually it'll be very difficult for them. Aliyah is not a problem. Getting married here is the problem. Right. Personal life choices. I think that some accommo- some Israeli accommodation to understanding the sincerity, even if it's complicated, of American Jewish choices will make it more possible for Israelis to be hospitable to these forms of Jewry, to to understand why someone and why an American Reformed Jew might feel both at times comfortable here and uncomfortable here. Let's probe that. Let's understand it. Let's figure mm-hmm. out whether it obligates Israelis. Oh, I actually, you want to be the national homeland of the Jewish people? I got to figure out how to actually be the national homeland of the Jewish people. And here's the thing. Anytime you talk about the Jewish people, you don't get to choose who you think the Jewish people should be. So who does? You actually have to embrace who the Jewish people are. Well, who chooses? Jewish people. So that's complicated. Because you could say, oh, the reform movement chooses, and we need to accept them. Accept them, And Jews for Jesus, we don't accept. That's already crossing the line. It was one of the things that I asked Yossi. Like, how far do we push the line? Would you daven with Jews for Jesus? Would, would you make a place for them at the Kote? He said, no, that's already going way too far. Yeah. Where do you, how do you know where to draw the line? Uh, I, as you, would not surprise you at all that I don't love this question. Um, in part because I think it's an uncomfortable place. No, because I think it's unfair. I think what happens is instead of trying to figure out how to build the majority center, we fixate on the fringe boundaries. So we look for, if I can solve the boundary question, then I will negatively define what belonging in the Jewish people looks like. Jews for Jesus is not our problem. It's like such a minor minority viewpoint. Jewish voice for peace, not our problem. It's like mm-hmm. a fringe the minority movement viewpoint. It's a large movement. This is, how are we talking about millions of people? And so I have to use, do I have to use Jews for Jesus to negatively define reform movement? This is millions of people. But the reform movement doesn't have a clear definition of what it is to be a sure Jew. Sure, it does. What's the definition? Read the Pittsburgh Platform, Columbus Platform, CCAR. There's there's a whole body of literature on what it means to be a Jew. A whole set of mm-hmm. powerful commitments. Most of it you would recognize and feel comfortable with. There are some rules you would say I don't like patrilineal descent. Okay, they have things that they don't like about Orthodox halacha too. All right, right. So there's a there's a big body of work. You know, I was um I was teaching a group of non Jew non Jews who were here studying here at Hartman about Jewish peoplehood. And one of the texts that I was using right at the outset of this is one of the most subversive texts in in the Gemara, which is on uh, on on when on Exodus 32, when God wants to destroy the Jewish people because they have committed the sin of the golden calf. And and the the, the way the Gemara tells the story is that Moshe destroys the tablets to save the Jewish people. Basically, take pulls the tablets back from God because. Um, if, if Moshe gives the tablets to them at that point, they are liable for the death penalty because they're literally in the lap of the idolatry. So Moshe destroys the Torah to save the Jewish people. Uh-huh. It's an unbelievable piece of Talmud. It's, that's an exact example of you don't choose the Jewish people and you don't, and actually the Jewish people committing idolatry are still the Jewish people. Yeah. You can do tshuva. And you have responsibility to, and Moshe does this. It's a heroic act because God says, I'll build a new Jewish people around you. You're pious. And Moshe says, no, I choose the impious Jewish people over building a pious version of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. What happens when we as contemporary Jews accept the Jewish people for who they are, even though we think that they're committing idolatry? And I'll say, I, I've been pushing on this side of things, on acceptance of reform Jews. But I oftentimes, when I speak to liberal Jews in America, I tell them they have to cool it with the anti-Haredi anti-Semitism that is pronounced among liberal Jewry. Same problem. You don't like Haredim? I get it. I know why you don't like them. You think they don't like you. They think you don't take them seriously. You have to care for them. They're the Jewish people also. You're saying lead by example. Yeah, you can't, you can't expect both ways. You can't ask of Israelis to accept Reform Judaism and then operate with this outright hostility towards Haredi Jews. They're part of your same story. Mm-hmm. Not so simple. Not simple at all. So why be Jewish? I don't think that's such a question for people. But yeah. why marry a Jew is a, is a big question for Jews. What would you say if somebody said to you, why should I marry a Jew? I find that an odd question. People get married to people who they fall in love with. Uh, very few people rationally organize their... Um, their intimate and their family decisions in that way. Every person I know who ever made a checklist of who they wanted to marry, uh, wound up marrying somebody who violated all the rules. So I don't, and I don't, I don't love the normativity that's implied in that question of why should I do this? I don't even like the question of why be Jewish. The way I think about it is Jewishness 
attachment to the Jewish people offers um, a really profound framework for human beings to live out the biggest questions, to search in the search for community meaning and purpose, which are which anthropologically have not changed. That's what we are all looking for. You want to be Jewish? I have a story to tell you. I have values to talk to you about. If you want to be Jewish, I want you to be obligated by the best versions of Judaism. If you don't, I don't know. I think you should be happy and live a happy life. Okay, fair enough. You know, and and it's not. And I I I don't. I there are people who spend their lives on the in the work of outreach, and I I think sometimes I think it done correctly. I think that's very holy work. It's not my work. My work is much more in the business of let me. How do I keep the house in order? <laughs> How do I be responsible for cleaning up this house, for filling the bookshelves, for making it a place where if somebody wants to lead a Jewish life, it's powerful? Um, and I want to be talking to Jews regardless of their own life choices. Many of the students of the Hartman Institute are people who have are themselves non-Jews or who have married non-Jews who are asking, what is it like to live a Jewish life? And they're not asking me an opinion on their marriage. And I don't want to give it. I want to give them the tools that if they want to live and lead a rich Jewish life, these are some of those tools. And whatever family choices they make ultimately are going to be in their own best interest. Okay. Fair enough. On this too, I am a pluralist. <laughs> That's fine. Before I ask you the last question, is there anything that we were talking about that you wanted to just say before we're done? We didn't get back to the Ethiopians. I don't know if we're going to talk about that. No, we won't talk about that today. Um, I would just say we talked a little bit in the God conversation earlier, um, and I made reference to the fact that I feel like a Chazal Jew. One of the things that I think is so is prevalent in how Chazal present their interactions with God, with the way the rabbis do in the Talmud, is um, is an awareness that something has radically shifted in the world of God not being present in the same way and activating a sense of what it means to be responsible. I think that's the rabbinic project is defined by human responsibility. I think the paradox is, of course, that it's a pious story. The rabbis don't, the rabbis aren't telling us that they're building an anthropocentric Judaism. God's still, of course, in the story. They're searching and they're seeking. One of the texts that I've been thinking with a lot in the last couple of years is in Chagiga 5a, where um, this unknown rabbi, Rabbi Bardala Bartavyumi, says, quoting the verse from Deuteronomy about God's divine hiddenness, he says, um, those who are not in the hiddenness are not of us. In other words, the Jewish people are the people who are experiencing divine hiddenness. That is a very dark theology, right? That what it means to be a Jew is to believe that God is hiding from you. And, goes, and then Rav Yosef says, almost like salvaging it, he comes along and says, nevertheless, we can see God's hand sh- shading over us. In other words, the shadowing is not just hiddenness, but there's some sense of intimacy. What I, what I love about this Talmud piece is that there's something very human and real about, about Rabbi Bardala's comment of what it means to be a Jew is to not live in the world thinking that God is taking care of you all the time. That obligates you to be a different kind of human being. And what Rav Yosef's comment is, nevertheless, it doesn't mean I have to stop seeking for God, stop looking for God. But I really think there's a different religious posture between a person seeking a relationship with God versus owning a relationship with God. And I think seeking, seeking is, seeking obligates us owning empowers us in ways that I think are at odds with the rabbinic project. Interesting. You have an interesting way of saying things. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Uh, There's always so much in each sentence that you're saying. Thanks. I appreciate that. So the last question is, let's say you had a billboard that millions of Jews were going to walk past it, stand there and read it. So you have a, a small amount of space, but to give over a message that many, many Jews would see, what would you put on your billboard? It's hard when you say, you know, billboards there, it's like, um, you know, by definition, it's reducing everything yep. to something. I know it's going to sound trite, but I would, I would put up there, Eluva Elu Divreilim Chaim. These and these are the living words of God. And not these and these are the words of the living God. Um, but these and these are the living words of God. I think it's the most radical. I think it's still the most radical idea in, in the rabbinic tradition, which is that no argument, halachic, political or otherwise, can ever claim the totality of truth. Doesn't mean that we don't build societies around it. It doesn't mean it's not public policy for the Jewish people for a long period of time. But this radical separation between the conviction conviction of our commitments and the belief that that conviction equals truth. And if we, if all of us carried around some, some knowledge that any of our commitments, all of them, even the ones we're most passionate about, fell a little bit short of truth, imagine what kind of Jewish community you could build. So you want people to constantly be in, in somewhat, some doubt. 
Yitz Greenberg has a, has a whole section on this where he says, after the Shoah, we have to confront his main, one of his main takeaways of the Holocaust is that absolute conviction kills people. That's what happens. And so after the Holocaust, there's no truth that should be considered anything more than a partial truth. He says, some of them I might be 98% sure, but this, the difference between 98% and 100% is the amount of violence that I'm willing to undertake to convince other people that they're wrong. If you have some amount of self-doubt, then it becomes a, a regulative Got restraint it. on what you think about the world. And I think it conditions how we treat other human beings and it conditions what it, what our religious sensibilities are about. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank, Thank you, you for very having much. me. Appreciate it. That was Yehuda Kurtzer, the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and I hope to have many more to come. I'm very pleased to inform our audience that Natan Sharansky has agreed to be on the podcast and will be recording a session sometime in September. Thank you for listening. Please make sure to leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to this podcast and share it with your friends who will help grow our audience and get this podcast more exposure. Thank you again. You may not be aware, but I have another podcast called the Hasidic Story Project, where every week I record a new Hasidic story. And since this audience might not know about the podcast, I want to give you a surprise right now. Here's one of the episodes from the Hasidic Story Project. Enjoy. This is the Hasidic Story Project with Barack Holman, podcasting from Jerusalem, Israel. This podcast is sponsored by listeners just like you. To become a supporter of this podcast, please go to HasidicStory.com. H-A-S-I-D-I-C Story.com. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. You'll never know. This week I have two short stories for you. The first is with the Chavetz Chaim. A student of the Chavetz Chaim once had a life-threatening, debilitating illness, which all the doctors told him had no cure. And so, knowing that his Rebbe, the Chavetz Chaim, was one of the greatest tzaddikim alive at the time, he made the trip to Rodin to ask the Rebbe for a bracha. The Chavetz Chaim gave it some thought, and then he told him that he would be able to help this student on the condition that he would never tell anyone this story. The student immediately agreed, and the Chavetz Chaim told him, there's a certain tzaddik who lives in a small city, in a small shack, deep in the forest. And he told him how to get there. He said, I want you to go there, knock on the door of the shack, and don't say a word. Just stand there, and the tzaddik will know what to do. He'll give you a bracha, and with Hashem's help, you'll get better. And so the student went all the way to this little town, deep into the forest, found the tzaddik, and knocked on the door. And the tzaddik just looked at him, and the student knew that he wasn't supposed to say anything. He says, what are you here for? And the student doesn't say anything. And the tzaddik in the forest looks him up and down, and he says, get out of here. Everything will be fine. And the guy leaves. As soon as he gets back home, he starts to feel better. And a few days later, the doctors checked him and said it was miraculous. He'd fully recuperated from his illness. So he continued to study in the yeshiva in Radin, and then eventually he moved away, got married, had a family, and according to the Chafetz Chaim's instructions, he never told the story to anyone. Twenty years later, his sister-in-law got a strange illness, and he realized it was the same illness that had afflicted him all those years before. But as the Chafetz Chaim had told him, he didn't say a word to anyone. And then his wife remembered that once he had told her before they got married, he had a certain illness, and any time she brought up the topic, he became very elusive. She felt like her husband was holding back some information, and this information might save the life of her sister. So she started nagging her husband. No, what happened all those years ago? You've got to tell me what happened. And the sister-in-law, and the in-laws, and everyone in the family, they're all pressuring 
this student of the Chafetz Chaim, to tell them what happened 20 years before. And so the student figured, well, it's been 20 years, and I've been healthy, thank God, for 20 years. It's probably all in the past at this time. So he told his wife the whole story. The Chafetz Chaim had sent him into the forest, to the tzaddik, not to say anything. Tzaddik said, get out of here, everything will be fine. Then he had a refuah shlema. He had a full recovery. So the family was very optimistic, and they hoped that this tzaddik could also save their sister. But within a very short amount of time of telling the story to his wife, the student started becoming ill again. And he realized it was the same sickness that he had suffered all those years before. He was shaken to his core, realizing that because he revealed the secret of how he was healed, he became sick again. So he made the journey back to the Chafetz Chaim. It wasn't easy for him because he had moved far away at that point, and he was also very sick. And when he arrived at the Chafetz Chaim, the Chafetz Chaim was already an old, weak man. The Chafetz Chaim right away remembered their last meeting, and he listened quietly as the student told over the turn of events. There was a short silence, and then the Chafetz Chaim spoke quietly and slowly. I'd love to help you again, but what can I do? The first time you were sick, I was still young and strong. I fasted for 40 days, 40 days straight, in order that Hashem should send you a refuah shlema, a complete healing. What can I do? I'm too old now to fast for 40 days. I don't have the strength to do it anymore. You see, not only did the Chafetz Chaim suffer for 40 days in order to help his student all those years ago, but he also arranged it in a way that it would appear that someone else's bracha had helped in order to help this Talmud, the student, never actually reveal the source of his full healing. The second story is about the Helege Sanza Rebbe. Everybody knows that Reb Chaim of Sanz suffered enormously from health problems, especially with one of his feet. And despite his own health problems, the Helege Sanza Rebbe was famous for his ability to cure others. Hundreds, even thousands of people came to be healed by the Sanzer. And one day, a wagon stops in front of the Sanza Rebbe's house, and a Yidele carrying another man, a very old and obviously very sick old man, came inside to see the Rebbe. Rebbe, please, this is my father. He has tuberculosis, and the doctors say he won't be in this world much longer. Please, you've got to help him. Sir Reb Chaim immediately answered, Take your father home and give him a strong cup of coffee. Black coffee. What? the son said. Are you insane? Coffee's the worst thing for a person in this condition. But the sonzer, he just repeated himself. Take your father home and give him a cup of strong black coffee, just like I told you. So the young Chassid, he didn't know what to do. And finally he said, well, the Sanzer for sure knows what he's talking about. After all, he is a Rebbe, and not just a Rebbe, he's my Rebbe. So he took his father home and gave him a cup of strong hot coffee. And as soon as he finished drinking the cup of coffee, the old man fully recovered. A few years later, the old Yidale got sick again, and his son thought, okay, my father's too sick to make the trip back to the Rebbe. So he figured, I'll just make him a cup of strong black coffee, like the Rebbe told me before, because there's no reason to go and bother the Rebbe and schlep my father over there again. And as soon as he drank the coffee, he started coughing up blood. So now the son freaked out, he didn't know what to do, put his father onto the wagon, and quickly went back to Sanz. The son's Rebbe took one look, at the suffering old Jew, and he said, What did you do to him to make him so sick? The young Chassid said, I did what you told me to do last time. I gave him a strong cup of hot coffee. What? said the Rebbe. Are you trying to kill him? Don't you know how dangerous coffee is for a man with tuberculosis? And the son, he just didn't know what to do. He was heartbroken. Please, Rebbe, is there anything you can do to help him now? The Sanzer looked at him straight in the eye. Take him home and give him a cup of strong black coffee. The son was shocked. He shook his head in disbelief. He didn't know what to do. But he took his father back home and gave him a cup of strong, hot coffee. And as soon as he finished the cup, the old Yidile was healed. He had a full recovery. You see, my sweetest friends, it had nothing to do with the cup of coffee. It all had to do with the Rebbe's bracha. And the reason the old man was healed the first time was because of the Rebbe's bracha. And when his son tried to give the coffee without the bracha, it didn't work. But when they came back again and the Rebbe gave his bracha, the old man had a refuah You know, sometimes we go to a Rebbe and the Rebbe will give us advice and will say, What? This advice is crazy. It doesn't make any sense to us. We only see what's going on in this world. But the Rebbe's 
They see what's going on in the upper worlds. When the Rebbe gives us instructions, he's talking from a higher place. So his advice, no matter how crazy it may sound to us, Kamamash bring us the greatest blessings from heaven. La 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 la